Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, my guest is Ahmed Iqbal. He's an NIHR academic clinical lecturer in diabetes and endocrinology, uh, part of the University of Sheffield over in the UK. And we're going to talk about his work. So, Ahmed, thanks for coming. It's a pleasure to be with you today, Richard. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. And I see you're focused on uh, you know, diabetes. Uh, tell me about your, your work. So, yeah, Richard, my work really spans uh, hypoglycemia research. We know that low blood sugars, also known as hypoglycemia or hypos, are a common side effect of insulin treatment in type 1 diabetes and indeed in type 2 diabetes treated with insulin and tablets that can lower the blood sugars. So really, I'm interested in how hypoglycemia or hypos affect the heart in both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. And specifically, I study how hypos can potentially increase the risk of heart attacks through inflammation, but also how the risk of sudden cardiac death can be increased because of hypos uh, causing abnormal heart rhythms. So for, I would think the, the range of hypoglycemia obviously goes down to zero death, but what's the range for different people? What's been observed? So I think it's important to understand that there are different definitions of hypo and the American Diabetes Association definition is symptoms of hypoglycemia, which I can touch upon alongside a blood glucose value of less than 3.9 millimoles per liter uh, in sort of international units. So symptoms alongside that value are defined as hypo, but a more severe episode of hypo is defined as that requiring assistance from a third party. So where someone else needs to actually give the person with diabetes treatment. But these definitions have problem. For example, children will always almost certainly require treatment from a third party. And more recently, there have, there's been a consensus document from the European Society of Diabetes and the American Diabetes Association, which has basically decided that another clinically important value of hypoglycemia is down to three millimoles per liter. So these are the, the definitions that exist. In, in milligrams per deciliter, what, what ranges are we talking about, if you don't mind? Yeah, of course. So in milligrams per deciliter, so 70 and below, is effectively. Oh, got it. Okay, good. So, so that's what we're talking about, if you convert these values. But has it been seen that some people are more tolerant of you know, values in the you know, 3 to 3.9 range or 60 to 70 milligram per deciliter range, and some are not? So yeah, that, that's a really interesting question, Richard. So we know that in people who have type 2 diabetes, if they run their sugars really high all the time, so if they're running their sugars, for example, above 270 milligrams per deciliter for a prolonged period of time, and if they have a rapid drop of their blood sugar to say around 100, 110 milligrams per deciliter, these people will report symptoms of hypoglycemia to, to their physician. Yet they are not biochemically hypo as per the definitions. And 
what we are becoming, you know, getting to realize in this group is that these folk are physiologically hypoglycemic, but not necessarily biochemically. And a way of explaining this is that the threshold for producing a complex set of hormones which exist in the body to protect against hypo are deployed at a higher level of blood glucose in these individuals, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense because, right, they're showing symptoms at higher levels, so they need the same interventions or some of the same ones, right? Sure. So, yeah, so they start to essentially, absolutely, as you say, start to deploy these hormones and show symptoms at a higher level. So what are some of the interventions and are there different levels of hypoglycemia that require different things? Not necessarily. So as per the guidelines at the moment, you know, for most guidelines, if you have a value of around 70 milligrams per deciliter and symptoms in keeping with hypoglycemia, then it is really treating it with a combination of quick acting carbohydrate. And then after that, longer acting carbohydrate. So the treatment depends, you know, on, on whether the person is conscious and able to take that treatment themselves and therefore they're cooperative. If a person with diabetes, unfortunately, has a particularly severe episode where they're unconscious and the value of glucose is very low indeed, then of course, this is a medical emergency and then they require treatment usually through intravenous glucose drip. What's the intervention of their weight? Just a few glucose tablets? And then what's the longer term fix of that? So, yes, yeah, so if they're awake and cooperative, of course, you'd give them, you know, some quick acting carbohydrate, as, as you've mentioned, alluded to. And then normally it's some longer acting carbohydrate, which could be two pieces of toast, for example. And it's important that, you know, the quick acting carbohydrate is indeed followed up with the longer acting carbohydrate, because often the reason for the hypo is if they've had a mismatch between the amount of carbs they've consumed and their medication, be it oral hypoglycemics or indeed insulin, and the effect of the quick acting carb will wear off pretty quickly, yet the insulin or the other tablet will continue to exert its effect. And therefore it's important to buffer that, if you like, with a longer acting carb. I understand why a type one diabetic, they barely produce any insulin or maybe none, why they would become hypoglycemic, but why would a type two get this way? What are some of the conditions that are common that put people into hypoglycemia? So that, that's again, a very, very important question. I think in answering that, Richard, we need to really come back to what the normal physiological defenses are against hypoglycemia. And as you point out in people with type one diabetes, under normal circumstances, when your blood sugar levels start to fall, the first line of defense, if you like, is that the beta cells stop producing insulin. Now that is lost in type one diabetes. And therefore people with type one diabetes rely on the second line of defense, which is production of hormones, particularly adrenaline, noradrenaline, which causes breakdown of sugars, which are stored in a complex form in the liver and the the muscles to release glucose. And then after this, you start relying on on other hormones. And the important point is that in in type 1 diabetes, both insulin and glucagon, which is the other hormone, are lost within five five years of diagnosis. And then they start relying on adrenaline or adrenaline and latterly on cortisol and growth hormone. In type 2 diabetes, you're right. Well, why, why are these people susceptible? So interestingly, Type 2 diabetes to begin with, there is relative insulin resistance and insulin is produced in relatively high amounts. But as the 
disease process progresses, most people with type 2 diabetes can also end up developing absolute insulin deficiency. So they lose this ability to turn off their insulin when their blood sugar falls. And therefore, they start relying more on glucagon and on adrenaline and noradrenaline. And with the passage of time, with recurring episodes of hypoglycemia, these defense mechanisms can become more blunt. And thus, this increases the susceptibility to hypos in these individuals too. Yeah, that, that makes me think what biochemically, what goes on when insulin enters a cell? How does it lower glucose? And then, you know, how does this new pathway work with adrenaline and noradrenaline? So when insulin enters a cell, you know, it acts through a complex number of pathways. And effectively, what insulin does is it stores sugar, which is circulating in the bloodstream into complex carbohydrates uh, for use by the cell's machinery and also for storage in the liver and, and the skeletal muscle. The hormones which are responsible for counter-regulating, which is to increase levels of glucose when it, glucose levels are falling, glucagon, adrenaline, noradrenaline, primarily work by breaking down stored sugar, glycogen, but also through gluconeogenesis, that is new formation of glucose from substrate within the liver. And, and this really serves to maintain the blood glucose as close to no, normal as possible. And then, of course, the reason for this is that the brain relies almost exclusively. In fact, you know, glucose is an obligate fuel for the brain to work. And therefore, we have these very sophisticated counter-regulatory mechanisms to keep glucose to near normal as possible. Now, as, as alluding to earlier, in type 1 diabetes, you lose insulin and you lose glucagon responses fairly early on, within five years, and then you rely exclusively on the third line of defense, that is adrenaline, noradrenaline. And with each you know, episode of hypoglycemia you get, the ability of adrenaline, noradrenaline to result in a rise in glucose is somewhat diminished. And the level at which these defenses are deployed shifts to increasingly lower glucose values. And this in itself increases, therefore, the risk of hypoglycemia. Well, what are adrenaline and noradrenaline binding to? How are they causing sugar to be produced? I apologize. Yeah, so effectively they are, you know, causing what we call gluconeogenesis and glycogenolysis. So they're effectively using substrate to build sugar, and they're also breaking down stored sugar to release glucose from complex carbohydrate to a more simple form. And they do this through a number of physiological effects and receptors, both in the liver and in the skeletal muscle. Do you think that the people that end up on the noradrenaline or adrenaline pathways, they tend to have less storage of, of complex carbohydrates or sugars or the precursors or sugars in the skeletal muscle or in the liver? Is that one reason why? Or is just the pathway by which they, they encourage this you know, gluconeogenesis or glycogen lysis different? Yeah, I mean, it's, just, uh, yeah, it's a good question. It's difficult to speculate. I mean, as I said, the the counter-regulation and, and the hyperglycemic effect, the, the ability to raise the sugar physiologically of these hormones, which are called catecholamines, is through simulation of glycogenolysis and gluconeogenesis in the liver. And that really is through these hormones acting on their receptors. And these are the beta and alpha receptors in the hepatocytes. So it's interesting how some people have you know resp varying responses and certainly something that could you know, be explored further through research. One of the things these hormones do do is that they further increase sugar through 
inhibiting the insulin mediated glucose uptake in the muscle and the fatty tissue. And they do this by blocking a set of transporters, uh, which are known as the GLUT4 transporters. So all these effects collectively have the same objective, really, which and that's to increase the blood plasma glucose levels. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's weird. You think someone at this point that has diabetes for a while, let's say type 2, and they're now relying on this new pathway, they would have significant persistent insulin resistance. So it seems like they wouldn't become hypoglycemic until there's really a, a complete lack of stores everywhere. Maybe that's why that this happens. Is that, you know, again, because of the resistance, there's normally, you know, a background serum level that's much higher. And maybe the storage is just uh, depleted. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting point. I think, at least in type 2 diabetes, what we have found is that the epidemiology of hypoglycemia, that is an episode of severe hypoglycemia defined as requiring third-party assistance is half of that compared to type 1 diabetes. And, and that, in a way, makes sense because you could argue that they have relative preservation early on in the course of their illness through, you know, you know, compared to type 1 diabetes, where the production of insulin is, is absolutely zero to minimal. But if you match people who have type 2 diabetes with type 1 diabetes according to duration of disease, then the incidence of hypoglycemia is comparable. And I think coming to the question as to why some people with type 2 diabetes have an increased risk of hypoglycemia, I think it is to do with the fact that their defense mechanisms, principally glucagon and adrenaline and noradrenaline, get progressively blunted. And thus the collective ability of these hormones to raise blood glucose levels is diminished as opposed to, in my opinion, there being a, a net different in their storage capacity to be able to mobilize substrate, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, right. So you mentioned that your research looks at how low sugar events affect the heart and what other tissues and how. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's really the, the focus of my interest in the work I've been doing, Richard. And I think it's important, I guess, to talk a little bit about the background to this. We know that the primary issue in, in type 1 and type 2 diabetes biochemically is hyperglycemia or high blood glucose values. And this is harmful to a whole host of organs, be it the blood vessels in the eye, the heart, the brain, the legs, or the fine vessels in your kidneys. And one of the questions that really got me interested in this research, looking at the effects of hypos on the heart was because around about 2010, the Action to Control Cardiovascular Risk in Diabetes trial looked at people with type 2 diabetes, and it randomized them to two arms. In one arm, they aimed to have very tight control of blood glucose, and in the other, more lax control. And the question they were asking is, what effect does tight control compared to more lax control have in reducing the risk of heart attacks and strokes in these people with type 2. Now, I remember very vividly, Richard, being in a library on an autumnal day in, in England, in, in Sheffield, and, and reading a leading publication showing that the Accord trial had been stopped early because those randomized to intensive control had a higher kind of risk of death, and there were excess mortality, and therefore the trial was closed early, and, and there was indeed excess cardiovascular mortality. Now, if you in treat people with type 2 diabetes intensively and give them insulin and other agents, you increase the risk of hypose. 
So naturally, there was a question whether people were getting more heart attacks in the intensive arm of the ACCORD trial due to increased risk of hypos, or was it that hypos were simply a marker of these people being sick and they were a surrogate for vulnerability and not causally causing the heart attacks? So I got interested in testing the theory that hypos in and of themselves could increase the risk of heart attacks and therefore increase cardiovascular risk in people with type 1 and type 2 diabetes. And I started to get interested in how they could do this through inflammation. So that really is the background to, to the work I've been doing. Well, I figured there's data on millions of heart attacks. When, you know, if you present at a hospital, you're having a heart attack or you've had one, do they look at, well, if you've had one, it's probably too late. Do they look at your blood sugar? If you're having one, do they bother to, you know, to take a, a blood sample? Is there any data yeah. on that? So there is. There is data indeed at the time of heart attack of, of people's blood sugars. And ordinarily at the time of heart attack, the blood sugar levels are high because catecholamines, adrenaline or adrenaline are actually pumping through because of pain and anxiety and stress. And that increases your sugar levels, as we discussed earlier, through acting on those alpha and beta receptors in the liver and also in the skeletal tissue. So your sugar levels are expected to be high. And, and that can actually cause a worsening of the outcomes following heart attacks too. So the sugar levels are, can be documented. But in these trials, it was difficult, Richard, to truly establish if hypoglycemia was causing the heart attacks because you know, it was, hypos weren't necessarily captured before the people had their index cardiac event. And of course, it's difficult to measure glucose values post-mortem reliably. And therefore, a real question mark remained as to whether the hypos were causally linked to increase cardiovascular risk in, in these large trials in type 2 diabetes, or whether hypos were simply a, a marker for vulnerability in these groups. Well, why don't you ask the patients their experiences? Do they record that? Maybe the people that have had more hypo events and are on this noradrenaline, adrenaline, you know, regime, they're, maybe their heart attacks are more painful. Maybe they're of a different nature, you know, maybe more severe or faster acting, or maybe the recovery is different. You know, I mean, there's, and, you know, and what the person says about how they feel and their symptoms and everything, maybe there's a yeah. difference there. You're absolutely right. And we do ask, of course, people, their recollection of hypos. And then that's one of the important points I'd like to discuss we rely upon, to a certain extent, patient recall of hypoglycemic events and how they fit temporally with their symptoms of chest pain and so forth. But what we found is that these data are somewhat limited because patient recall can limit their accuracy. And further, as the incidence of heart disease increases with age, and particularly in the older person, recall can be compromised due to, for example, cognitive decline, and therefore it becomes less reliable yet further to link up, you know, if a person who had a heart attack also had a hypo a week before requiring assistance from a third party. Of course, what we can do is look through electronic health record data retrospectively and try and understand if there's an association between prior hypoglycemia and cardiovascular events. And there has been studies that have looked at that. But again, these studies are limited by their observational nature and, and their retrospective design. What, we, what we've been doing, Richard, in Sheffield is we've been trying to look prospectively at hypos that occur in the free living condition, that is people that are at home 
you know, walking and doing the ordinary activities of daily living, and also marrying this up with what happens to their heart rhythm, for example. So the way we achieve this is we supply our research participants who have type 1 and indeed type 2 diabetes with continuous glucose monitors. And at the same time, we provide them you know, continuous ECG recording via you know, devices. And then we basically allow them to use these two simultaneously for a week and we bring them back. We download the continuous glucose monitors and we also download the data from the ECG and we marry up what happens to the heart rhythm when the person's blood glucose is normal, when it is low and when it is high. And we try and understand what the association is between these three levels and heart rhythm abnormalities. Well, that's interesting. What, what kind of CGM patterns do you see in the people, you know, apart from heart rhythm, you know, before and after meals, does the profiles look very different? Like I'll, I'll give you yes. an example. Um, sure. My wife and I, you know, she still wears them, but I haven't in a little while, but we wore CGMs, you know, and uh, I, guess, I guess we're both like pre-diabetic. So hers, like she would eat a meal, you know, if it had a lot of carbs in it, hers would like spike up really high and then crash and she wouldn't feel good. And mine, you know, would go up high, but it would come down really slow. So they're like two totally different profiles. So I wonder like what, you know, what you've observed and people using the CGMs. See, indeed, we, we found, as you point out, a fair degree of heterogeneity in people in type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes. And these profiles, of course, are confounded by many things, not only diet, as you point out, but also activity, including exercise. And I note that you had a very nice podcast recently about exercise and diabetes, which covered a lot of the issues around how exercise affects blood sugar values, but also consumption of alcohol. And all these factors give a very diverse profile in people of different age groups and, and different types of diabetes. So we definitely do see varied and heterogeneous profiles. Well, even if you look at a hypo event, you know, what does that look like in the CGM? Is that a dip down into the hypo regime that comes back up quick or a dip down and it stays there? You know, there's, I would think like, you know, of course the heart's very important with your research, but Correlating the data between the CGM yeah. curves and the heart would be like really interesting. Have you yeah. have you gotten to that point where you can see that? Yeah, we, we, we've been doing that. In fact, we published research along these lines in both type 1 and type 2 diabetes from my group, which I've been involved in and contributed to. And we, we find, interestingly, diurnal differences, so differences between day and night. And, you know, the effects of the sugar on the heart differ between day and night, but also what's important is that we, the episodes of hypo that occur during the night are more likely to go undetected and last longer compared to those that occur during the day. And one obvious explanation is if the hypo occurs during the day, then the person with diabetes is more, more likely to you know, develop the symptoms and treat it, whereas it's less likely that they'll be able to develop symptoms whilst asleep. But also because our normal defense mechanisms towards hypoglycemia correction are somewhat dampened at, during night whilst asleep compared to the day. So you do get different profiles in terms of how long the bump stays hypo during these studies between night and day. So we, we do see that. We see different profiles. And of course, as I said, these are influenced by diet, exercise, differences in insulin dosage and consumption of alcohol. Why? Well, I should have asked, this is a basic question. Why does the uh, hypoglycemia event appear to affect the heart? Or why is that your hypothesis? 
Sure, yeah. So that's really important and, and really an important question. So we know that, as we discussed actually throughout now, that one of the key mechanisms the body has against low blood glucose values or hypos is release of catecholamines, that is adrenaline, noradrenaline. And this, of course, corrects blood sugar by bumping up the glucose values. But high adrenaline and noradrenaline are not necessarily good for the heart. They exert a number of, of effects on the heart. First, they increase the heart rate, but they also increase the resistance against which the heart has to pump. And if someone has coronary artery disease or atherosclerosis, this increases the demand placed on the heart and therefore could increase the risk of heart attacks. Further, catecholamines also drive potassium, which is a really important electrolyte into the cell. And lowering of potassium can also increase the possibility of abnormal heart rhythms. And this can lead to dangerous cardiac rhythm abnormalities. In addition, what I've shown and and I'm very much interested in is that release of catecholamines following hypoglycemia makes platelets stickier, but it also causes release of immune cells, particularly monocytes and neutrophils. And these can travel to the heart and the coronary arteries and potentially increase the risk of heart attacks by progressing a plaque, which is already sitting in the coronary arteries. So in summary, there are a number of mechanisms to which hypoglycemia can increase cardiovascular risk. Most of these are consequent upon release of adrenaline and noradrenaline that occurs as a counter-regulatory response to hypo and includes effects both on the heart rate, rhythm, changes in blood rheology, in particular platelets, and monocytes and neutrophils, which collectively you could call inflammation. Yeah, it's a lot going on. Indeed. What happens, what does just the heart rhythm look like during a hypo event or during high blood sugar? Does, it, does the heart tend to beat faster naturally in, in, you know, yeah. in either of those cases? Or I don't know, does it, does it go off rhythm at all? Like, you know, electrically, what's the heart doing in those two circumstances? Yeah, and we found that under normal conditions, of course, the, the rhythm is relatively normal. And we're using the person with diabetes as their own control during these three con conditions of hypoglycemia, hyperglycemia, and and euglycemia, which is normal rhythm. And ordinarily, the heart does speed up a little bit during hypoglycemia because the person with diabetes starts to release catecholamines, and, and that speeds up the heart. But we've also shown that there can indeed be bradycardia, which can occur during the heart, and that's a slowing down of the heart rhythm, and that that can occur more frequently at night compared to the day. So these are the differences which occur within hypoglycemia. We have some data on hyperglycemia and the heart, and that is as of yet unpublished, but that also certainly shows some interesting changes in both the heart rate and also its rhythm. Another important thing which occurs in the heart during hypoglycemia, which has been shown by us and others, is that there's a prolongation in the QT interval. And effectively, it's the amount of time it takes for the heart to reset electrically between beats. And prolongation of this QT interval has been shown to be associated with abnormal and dangerous heart rhythms, effectively. 
So what's what's your end goal with the research? What do you want to figure out and what kind of interventions do you want to make if possible? So Richard, my, you know, if, if there was a holy grail, so to speak, it is to further understand the mechanisms of how hypoglycemia can increase cardiovascular risk, but also to move beyond that and come up with strategies so that we can mitigate the harmful effects of hypoglycemia on the heart and allow the person with diabetes to have optimal personalized glucose control. And I think part of the answer lies in innovations such as technology, but also the importance of educating the patient and working with them in partnership so that they understand the limits and effects and side effects of insulin treatment, but also ultimately to come up with therapeutic agents, which would mean that if a person has a hypoglycemic episode and they're at high risk of heart disease, that they can take this and hopefully reduce in the short and medium term the risk of the hypo on the heart. Yeah, there's a lot to look at. It's uh, very interesting. Well, very good. Ahmed, what's the best way for people to find out more about your research? Where can they follow your work? So it's through my webpage at the University of Sheffield, where I share my latest research publications, but I also share them through my Twitter handle, and that's Ahmed742Iqbal. And I'd be delighted to hear from people on, through Twitter if they have any ideas to share and their own stories. I think diabetes and type 1 diabetes in particular is unique in the burden it places on the person to self-manage their condition. And I really do believe as a clinician scientist, Richard, that it's important to take the lessons from the person with diabetes and the problems that they're facing to the laboratory to come up with solutions that are best tailored to their approach. And that is effectively why I think it's really important to uh, keep engaging with the people with diabetes to really learn from them where the gaps are in diabetes care and then use the best possible, you know, research to address those. Yeah, it makes sense because everyone's different and you can't just apply a number or a ratio to somebody and have it work for everybody. They may uh, be completely different based on their circumstance and all their health factors. So yeah, you got to, you have to marry the clinical with the, with the lab. So it makes sense. Absolutely. Well, very good. Well, I mean, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure, Richard. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.